Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. In studio with me for a look at the week trending, we have Jack Horgan-Jones, political reporter with the Irish Times, and Lise Hand, a journalist as well. And Lise, let's start with a subject very close to your heart, <laughs> the price of a pint. Now, I know it's Heineken who are hiking the price of a pint, mm-hmm. but where, Diage, where Heineken goes, Diageo is likely to follow. But in reality, will this stop people from buying pints and pubs? Probably not. Um, I mean, you know, I suppose like everybody, my first reaction was absolute outrage. I mean, I don't like to mention Arrival Station, but it's probably the first time in my life I genuinely considered ringing Joe Duffy and Liveline for a massive moan. Um, but I think when, pe- when people calm down, they'll sort of say, look... You know, I go for a few pints, an extra few euro or an extra few cent on it in the great scheme of things. It could be anything huge... between 25 to 50 cent per yeah. pint, depending on the player you go and have your drink. This is very true. And I think the government won't be happy with this because it, it once again focuses attention on the massive amount of money they take in, in excise. I mean, they take something like 55, 55 cent per pint, you know, as compared to 21 other EU countries who only take about 22 cent and Germany only takes 5 cent per pint. So, you know, again, I think this will sort of focus the amount of attention just how much of your money goes where. And, um, you know, it's a bit grinchy probably doing it this time of the year, particularly with the... I suppose all the pubs and all hospitality sectors really looking forward to a big Christmas after two fairly you know, grim years in the doldrums, with, you know, during the pandemic and so on. But um, you know, again, do people? You know, will people? Some people drink prefer to drink at home, just go to the office and get you know get some. There is some an beer. age thing here as well, Jack Organ Jones, isn't there? Younger people don't go to the pub as much as older generations did and yeah. do. Or else they have the good sense to, to start drinking at home and, and get a get a, a base layer in before heading to the pub and then they are... Where's the fun in that? <laughs> then they're only reaching in the pocket for like the two or three pints, you know. Um, and as Lee said, you know, it's just ahead of Christmas and a lot of a lot of non-optional drinking goes on around Christmas so I think people won't be left with a choice. Um, and it's just after the budget and it was the first budget in ages where they didn't hit the price of a pint. They hit the older life in the form of cigarettes but not in the form of pints so everyone who breathed a raspy sigh of relief arising from that looking forward to their um, unhiked price pint, uh, price of a pint will should, now be Should we really be saying this got more. on last night and said the price of a loaf of bread has gone up by about 50 cents so far this year yeah. that's what we should be focusing on not the price of alcohol I know, but these things cut through, as you know. <laughs> That's the very reason why we're sitting here talking about it. One of the funniest things, though, is is uh, the the reaction of some of the um, some of those in the trade saying this is going to bring the price of a pint up to six euro or past the six euro mark. There are some hostleries in this uh, in this postcode that passed that uh, that waypoint some time ago, and they know? certainly did. And I think some pubs down in Cork are actually threatening to 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 take the Heineken taps off. Completely. What about and, Murphy's? And I did know, and I did notice a few of the enterprising local beer companies and, and craft brewers were up on social media directly talking to pubs, uh, saying, come and get our products, they're a lot cheaper. And uh, But, you know, again, it is the price of the pint. I mean, I just came back from Westport and um, there's a pub down there where I got change from a fiver Good for Lord. a pint of Guinness. It's like the doll bar, isn't it? That's, I, would, I wouldn't know. I can't remember. It's been so long since I've John been John in Castlebar says, will you calm down? 50 cent per pint over six pints is just three euro. Big deal. Move on. Loads more to be worrying about. But what, if, what if you plan to drink more than six pints? Or what if 
the extra three euro genuinely is something you don't have. Or don't want to spend. Or more importantly, and more seriously for a moment, what if it's coming on top of, as we know it is across the board, it's coming on top of uh, cost of living increases that have hit every single other part of, of your life and are putting households and individuals and businesses as well under massive pressure this Christmas. It's another unwelcome slap in the face, yeah. really. COP27 has been taking place in Egypt but we're going to play you a little bit of audio to the UN General Assembly from 33 years ago and see if you can identify who this climate change campaigner is. What we are now doing to the world by degrading the land surfaces, by polluting the waters and by adding greenhouse gases to the air at an unprecedented rate All this is new in the experience of the earth. It is mankind and his activities which are changing the environment of our planet in damaging and dangerous ways. We can find the difference now is in the scale of the damage we are doing. We are seeing a vast increase in the amount of carbon dioxide reaching the atmosphere. The annual increase is 3 billion tonnes and half the carbon emitted since the Industrial Revolution still remains in the atmosphere. At the same time as this is happening, we are seeing the destruction on a vast scale of tropical forests which are uniquely able to remove carbon dioxide from the air. 33 years ago, what a succinct analysis of the crisis that faces us now. And Lise Hand, for the younger members of the audience, identify that climate campaigner. Well, I'll tell you, it's not just, you know, the glaciers that melted. My head did too. And I suddenly found myself actually nodding along in agreement with none other than Margaret Thatcher, which is... Reviled hero of the right. Yes. And there she is with all her environmental credentials firmly on display. Nothing that any left-wing crusty could disagree with. Well, this is it. And, you know, what struck me about that particular piece of audio is that just how simply she put it. I mean, she actually nailed all the kind of main the main points that are still pertinent today. And I think she did actually work as a, as a chemist uh, uh, or at some stage. So she, she sort did. of knew she her way. In that. Yeah, so she kind of knew her way around the subject. And... um she, for a couple of years, she was very much on top of this whole thing and she sort of did work around kind of trying to, you know, sew up the, 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 the hole in the ozone layer and all that. Not personally, obviously. But the trouble was when, when you kind of, when I was having a hunt around, it looked like a fairly short lived. I mean, she was, uh, That's very near the end of her term as British Prime Minister. Yeah, So maybe if history had been different, if she'd been allowed to stay on, we'd all be better off. Well, I mean, it is possible because the one thing, and even the people like, you know, in in things like Greenpeace and uh, sort of say um, that she... She brought a gravitas to the subject because, uh, you know, most people had regarded, you know, climate change or global warming uh, as just the, the province of the of the tree huggers and the sort of, you know, the woolly trouser brigade. And apparently after she made that speech and another couple like it, membership, a lot of, a lot of the organisations went up and people started taking it quite seriously. I mean, they should make this required reading or required listening for the entry packs for 
Tory freshman MPs because, you know, there is no shortage of, of Thatcher worship going on in the Conservative Party at the moment. But there is also no shortage of what edges right up towards climate denialism. And, you know, not too long ago, uh, he's been flushed thanks to the currently ruinous state of British politics. But not too long ago, we had, I think, the Energy Secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was encouraging fracking and uh, more oil and gas exploration in the North Sea and all these kind of things. So you do have, uh, in common with other parties, it must be said, not least the Republican Party in the US, you have a mainstreaming of elements of climate denial. And it's it, that's why it's so richly ironic to see someone who is an, an icon of the libertarian right talking about, not only, I think, in that uh, piece, she's talked about the, the science of it and the irrefutability of the science of it. She also, I think, talked about, you know, how this can only really be solved with collective action and governments working together and, you know, effectively the subtext of that is devolving some of the personal autonomy to the state, which is something that, you know, Thatcher would not have been a massive fan she of. It's not, not within her joiner. philosophy. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the state of the modern day Tory party. I mean, her own daughter did end up going and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. We now have a former minister, Matt Hancock, there. And I suppose Maybe they fly Gavin Williamson out now as well because he's in lack of a job, the latest British minister to be fired. But how could Rishi Sunak have left himself in a position where within weeks of taking over, he has to fire one of his ministers, Lise? Well, I mean, his judgment has to be questioned from the start why he actually put him in uh, the cabinet, even albeit with the sort of that roving non-portfolio role. I mean, this is somebody who had been removed from two cabinets uh, previously to that. And... I mean, personally, I think as soon as I saw the, you know, the initial text exchange, I just thought he's gone. Uh, he should be gone because, you know, it was clear bullying and uh, it was the classic kind of case of somebody picking on subordinates who are, you know, who can't fight back. And um, and I was really annoyed, actually, about some of the language that was used around his apologists, people saying, oh, he was juvenile and he was puerile. He wasn't. He mm. wasn't. He was actually pig ignorant and a classic bully. Um, and, uh, you know, when that is really when it started getting serious, it's a classic thing. This atmosphere of fear is created. And once somebody breaks ranks and says, look what he did, then others feel emboldened to come out because there's a certain safety in numbers. We've seen this time and time again in, and in people, bullying people situations. People get barked as well, you know, when they're kind of told this is all part of the cut and thrust of, of politics. And if you can't take the occasional effing and blinding text message, you're in the wrong game. Um, and, you know, I think that when the cold light of day is shone on these exchanges. It's not necessarily something that anyone would be particularly proud to have their name next to. And yet, and yet, he managed to to survive for quite a long period. And I think that that kind of speaks to some of the kind of Faustian pacts maybe that Rishi Sunak has had to has had to sign in order to to shore up his position as Prime Minister, not least his reappointment of Suella Braverman as, as Home Secretary, who is already under fire for, you know, uh, serially, it seems, um, sending government documents through a, a, a Gmail, but also is representative of that kind of more hard right um, element of Tory ideology at the moment that he's had to, to make his bed with, you know? Yeah. Well, OK, Seamus Interlee says, well, the sliced pan may have gone up by 22 cents since May, but I don't eat six sliced pans a day. A listener says milk, a staple food, has gone from two euro for three litres up to three euro thirty. And the main concern here is that there's 25 cents going on the price of a pint only in Ireland. That, of course, being a pint of alcohol rather than have been a pint of milk. Fair point, maybe. Jack Horgan-Jones, tell us about the bus that decided to take a shortcut on the footpath. 
a Dublin bus in Ternier. I like when I saw the headline for this, and I presume that nearly all people listening will have seen the video by now. I kind of thought that when I clicked into the article, you'd see a, a Dublin bus kind of gingerly edging up onto the pavement, or maybe across a a bus uh, or a cycle lane and kind of creeping along outside traffic. But it does not, and it's just so shocking. It's hurtling down the road at like the speed limit or more, and just like it's just so amazing because he's ne- he's totally, nearly totally on the pavement, and like this wh- is what this is. Well, of course, it's a very connects, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, maybe so, yeah. But, like, well, well, of course it's very serious as well. Like, it is It is quite funny when you see it for the first time and then you take a step back from it, of course, you think about the poor people who live in the house and, you know, there's been various people all across the airways very reasonably complaining about, you know, what if my kid was out there? But, like, it is in some way, like, it's such a bad story for Dublin Bus, you know, a, a company that, that, that struggles with its corporate image at the best of times. But was there a traffic jam or something that was, required yeah. it skipping past? Yeah, mm. yeah. So he just, he, he just viewed, he or she, um, I don't know the gender of the bus driver, but... Uh, they viewed the the traffic as optional and just went straight up onto the pavement and just pegged it down towards a bus lane. Confused it for a bus lane? Well, this is the thing. I mean, the roads around the city, I mean, it's like the Wild West. I mean, it's every man and woman for himself between, you know, the private vehicles, uh, buses, lorries and bikes and scooters and everything else and pedestrians trying to weave in and out of them. I mean, you, you know, it really is. I mean, I tentatively, and I'm fairly brave soul, but I mean, I... I tentatively started trying to cycle my bike around town and just went, no, can't be doing mm. that now because I've just almost sideswiped too many times. And a lot of times by Dublin buses passing you, you know, to the extent that my, you know, your hair would sort of be blowing in the breeze, you know, as they went by you at some insane, you know, at some insane speed. And, you know, again, a lot of this goes back just to the sort of haphazard nature of the design and planning of our roads. And you've got... You've got sort of they're they're trying to square a circle. They're trying to put a bus lane, a cycle lane, and a road onto a you know what was once a country lane not so long mm. ago. That that's the trouble. It's just that the so road system is the solution. Is the solution taking cutting hacking away at lots of people's front gardens and having super bus lanes? Well, I mean, that's what, you know, that was... That was Your man seems to be annexing it anyway. Be. Like, he's, he's, he's removing the kind of local jurisdictional element of it or any kind just of council straight, vote. He's just saying, yeah, this is, this is now a bus lane. He's, he's taking it like uh, Putin took Crimea, you know. It's, <laughs> it's a rather straightforward way of uh, enforcing bus connects. But I think Lisa's right, you know. Like, I think that Dublin City is increasingly difficult to get around. Um, I had a bad accident off my bike a couple of years ago and, you know, I haven't gotten back on a bike in any meaningful sense since. And I don't think I will. And I wouldn't like to have my kids on the back of the bike I wouldn't like any of my family really to be going around and like it's a city that unfortunately it seems several years ago made the choice for the private car and then since then has been trying to kind of reverse its way back out of that and add on or bolt on other ways of getting around without actually excising the private car from the city centre or you know building public transport to the degree where infrastructure is sufficient that people don't actually have to rely on their cars day in day out now I know that Eamon Ryan has been talking about removing effectively the private car from the city centre but you know he'll, he'll face no end of opposition for that and unfortunately all you get all, it feels like all you get is a lot of talk and like can anyone really be sitting here and saying in 10 years I think that Dublin City is going to be an easier city centre to get around you know So listen here say go underground we have tiny medieval cities go underground but that costs a small fortune and takes an enormous amount of time and even if we put the metro line in as is planned that's only one of what would presumably need to be a whole load of different lines Yeah there's a lot of problems I think going underground because we're basically built on a 
you know, a lot of water as well. So, I mean, I think even just technically it's a difficult thing to do. But, you know, when you look at Dublin, it's the ideal city to be, uh, you know, trans. You know, it's a cycle-friendly city because it's a compact city centre mm. and it's largely flat, which certainly suits Owlands like me. Mm. OK, let's move on. Uh, what use do you think will one of Sean Penn's Oscars be to the Ukrainian resistance against Russia? They can melt it down for ammo. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, this is it. I mean, but it's only on loan, isn't it? Yeah, it's only until they win the war. I mean, ugh, Sean Penn. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I just have distinct memories of him in sort of you know inserting himself into into Hurricane Katrina drama as well. You know, turning up. Uh, you know, I think he was sort of patrolling in a in ribs up and down. You know, just to stop looters and so on. And you know, really. It's. I'm sure now they they just don't need the distraction. I mean, it's just an, it's a load of nonsense. I mean, it, it's it is. It really no, I'm, is. I'm, I'm fully behind nonsense. this. Like it's it's the one of the weirdest um, aspects of the whole conflict in in uh, Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine is you know this weird kind of pilgrimage that high profile people seem to be making. And it started off, I think, in the early days of the war, and when it was like genuine. Sorry, ben Johnson and Ben Stiller. Yeah, Boris exactly. Johnson and Ben Bono. Stiller. Sorry, yeah. And and and, yeah. and often for the sake of political expediency, particularly when it came to Boris Johnson, who whenever it seemed um, and there was no shortage of it, uh, but whenever a fresh domestic political scandal emerged, he would find himself on the phone or en route on the phone to Zelensky are en route to Kiev. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of high-profile people doing it and, like, you know, Sean Penn is an actor and Zelensky originally was an actor, so, you know, maybe he did appreciate it on, on some level getting an Oscar, but it's just bizarre, you know, and it just, it, it renders the whole thing into, like, a spectacle and distances you, I think, a little bit from, like, the very real reality of the fact that people are dying on the front line. There's yeah. a fairly brutal war going on. It, like, it's just, it's, it's, Hollywood. it's, it's yeah, strange it and it's kind, kind of Hollywood thing. And unsettling. Yeah, and it also, it, like, it's, it's Sean Penn putting himself right in the middle of this oh, of in the most is. visible way possible because like you know if, if if he thought that the currency of someone high profile going to visit Zelensky might be being depleted a little bit he knew he'd get headlines but going along and lending him an Oscar he didn't even give it he lent it well I mean which is you know, a bit stingy let's face it and you know one thing about the, the sort of Ukraine defence forces is they're very adept at using social media I mean they really are they um, you know they have very effective ways of like putting up video and so on like that to to draw people into it and sort of you know to kind of display the realities of it that's quite extraordinary and you know that's just sort of holly that's yeah it does it's sort of hollywood you know inserting itself into the scenario doesn't no stay at home sean and count your oscars and try <laughs> and find a good script two. while you're at it actually so yeah okay of course the ukrainians have also been at war with elon musk who was providing <laughs> the rest of the world yeah. um Elon Musk looking a bit boring, isn't it? And that's not a pun on his other company for doing the underground tunneling. But he has really at this stage. I mean, are people going to lose interest in him very quickly? All these mad announcements. It almost, it almost seems a bit like the Sean Penn thing, where it's all contrived just to keep the the attention on him. I was talking to someone earlier on, and I said he's a bit like the Cat in the Hat. You know that book where like this kind of weird interloper comes in and starts messing stuff up. I'd say like the people who work in Twitter, are like the boy and the girl and the Cat in the Hat, just trying to deal with this guy coming in and tearing the place asunder. You know, and it's 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 a remarkable spectacle. Um, but it does have real effects. I mean, much as uh, most people kind of loathe Twitter, really, like it's a bit of a it's a bit of a toxic place at the best of times. But it is, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, somewhere that has a, a big role in shaping discourse and discussion, particularly for journalists and politicians, even if it's actually not as big or as influential a social network um, as Facebook or TikTok or something like that. I think for for people who work in the media, it's informing a lot of their their opinions and anything. I think that kind of 
Corsons or Cheapens or damages the discourse even further on Twitter, I think, has the potential to be politically damaging. I it's think. been an absolute cock up from start to finish. I mean, he only took over Twitter on the 28th of October and uh, you know, he spent 44 billion on it. I mean, and he's now just, talking that it could go bankrupt. And he now had an all hands, yeah, last night. And, you know, he was talking about like the situation is dire, it could all, you know, all go bankrupt. And even, I mean, I actually just sat down and, and watched Twitter last night because I, I literally couldn't believe what was unfolding. Like people like his trust and safety office, officers, a lot of the key personnel all left. You had one, at one juncture, you had somebody who was employed in a legal uh, uh, capacity there who had left, was up basically advising the staff still there. Like, this is what you should do. You know, you don't have to do this. You don't absolutely have to come into the office here. You know, so next thing that all holy hell is breaking loose. And, um, and it's... I mean, it just speaks to how this guy operates. I mean, mm. you know, he went in and it's almost like the sort of the, the, the big tech mantra, you know, break everything, disrupt everything. But, you know, instead of kind of breaking everything to create something new, he's just, I mean, he's just turning Twitter into something that could be like literally in, you know, Twitter and flitters, you know, within, you know, in, in a few weeks. Because one listener saying that Twitter usership is now at a record high. I thought everyone had gone to Mastodon. Well, I mean, yeah, do you know what? That's kind of like tune in to Formula One to see all the cars crash at the first bend. You know, I mean, everybody is, you know, everybody's sort of getting onto Twitter now to sort of see the disintegration and the madness. And by the way, I mean, given that all all the safety clamps appear to have come off, that's probably like another thousands and thousands of bots and fake accounts yeah. that have all just like flooded that's back true. in. That's and, true. And, and whatever about the, uh, you know, the, the what you can see and the real time dumpster fire that is there, like it's only a matter of time you'd have to presume before like firing all the security people really results in some massive hack or leak or some kind of really damaging thing that really does drive people away from And it. apparently if he, if he just hadn't, hadn't got enough to worry about with his Tesla hat on, I saw a story in Reuters earlier on saying that some guy is suing him for 56 billion and the case, case is going to court. It's This guy had uh, something like eight shares in Tesla back in 2018 and the case didn't get thrown out. It's actually gone sort of going up through the ranks now. So, I mean, he's getting it from all sides. Thank you very much, Lee Hand, Jack Horgan Jones. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4 30.